church and welcome neighbors. Glad to spend a couple minutes with you looking at God's word. And I want to begin by maybe putting words to a thought or a feeling that you have likely had before, but maybe you've never articulated it in this way. I want to ask it like a question and then kind of pick it apart a little bit. So <clears throat> if God answered your every prayer in a positive way, would you follow him? If God gave you everything that you ever asked him for and made your life the most richest that it could possibly be, gave you all the money, gave you all of the promotions, gave you all of the um, toys that you would ask him for, if he gave you all the health that you would ask him for, would you choose to follow him? Um, we sometimes interact with God in this way. We think, uh, God, if you would just give me this one thing, I will live my life for you. Or, or we make these kind of bargains with him. And, and the idea is that if God would give us what we're asking for, that yeah, we absolutely would follow him, we would serve him, we would care what it was that he had to say. Sometimes we get into this mindset where we think that if God would just answer my prayer, then I would be obligated to or I would want to follow him more. I'd want to have a more devoted relationship with him. And I just wouldn't want to unpack that today. I want to explore the idea of what it would look like for God to serve up everything you ever wanted on a silver platter. And I want to dissect how you might actually respond in the real world. It's, it's a little bit of an interesting conversation to have if we haven't met yet. But we're going to look at the scriptures, we're going to look at the Bible, and we're going to... Um, be addressing issues that I think are common to every person throughout history, throughout uh, geography, no matter when or where you were born, there are some heart issues that uh, we need to deal with that are applicable to all of us. And I'd like to do that as we're beginning a new series that we're calling Break the Cycle. And as we open up this series, we're going to be looking at a biblical book that's called Judges. And the book of Judges covers a 600-year period of history that is really, really dark and depressing and disgusting in a lot of different ways. And so it's never really a book that you think, man, I'm in a season of my life where I have to be studying Judges. It's the kind of thing where it appears that God is leading us to look at this book right now and ask some questions. This time, this season where we have more time for self-reflection. And I think it could be really beneficial to us. But in order to talk about this book of Judges, I actually want to invite you to consider the whole story of the Bible. And we're not going to read it all in this first time, but I am going to try and give you in a nutshell, as, as small of a nutshell as I'm able to, the, the story of the Bible. So if that sounds interesting to you, if you'd like to continue on with me, I would love to be able to talk with you through these things. Um, and as we begin, let's just invite God to be a part of our conversation. Let's pray together um, just a, a simple prayer that Jesus left for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, I'm going to summarize a lot of information um, and I'm going to ask you to hang with me. And there will be times where we'll drop into the story and do a little bit of reading, but I'll let you know when we do that. So when you open up the Bible, we might think of the Bible as a book of rules or a book of to-dos or to-don'ts. And we can think of it as a book that's kind of like a, a comic book. It's just full of superheroes and holy people that had way more self-control than I had. And I'd just like you to take all of those ideas of what the Bible is and just stick those on a shelf somewhere. In fact, you can file those in a trash can because they're not helpful to you. What the Bible does do is it, it takes uh, God through the men that wrote it down. Um, God takes a, a, a long time telling this story about who he is. He's, he's trying to introduce himself to people who naturally don't really want to meet him. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody really wants to introduce you to somebody that you don't want to meet. Uh, I don't know if they're trying to set you up on a blind date or that kind of thing. But most of us... We have questions about God, but we really don't want to meet him. But what the Bible does is it, it, it functions as a really long introduction and explanation of who God is. And it serves to point us to him. And where the Bible opens, where the Bible starts, is it is an introduction to God as the creator. So, so the Bible does this thing that I think is really interesting. It never tries to prove God's existence. God doesn't have to prove his existence. He just says, I am, and this is what I did. So it opens with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is, is a creative God. He's a God that, that is careful and meticulous. He plans out his creation. There's an order to it, and he makes everything just by the power of his word. And as he's going through and creating things, he's creating animals and plants and, and, and celestial things like stars and moons, um, he, he pauses at the end of his creation and says, I'm going to make something like me. I'm going to make a masterpiece that reflects my image, that is, that is like me and represents me to the rest of creation. And he pauses and stops creating with his words. And the Bible describes him as taking the dust from the earth and fashioning and forming a human person and breathing his life into that human person. So God, God creates humanity to be like him in, in a very special way. Unlike anything else in creation, we, humanity, is the image bearers of God. We represent God to the rest of creation. We were designed to be like him. And the Bible goes on to tell the story about how the very first people that God created chose on purpose to ignore him. So people that live in a world that, that has never been broken, there is no sin, there is no death, there is no uh, wickedness, there is no diseases that we have to be quarantined from. People who lived in that perfect world chose to ignore God's command. God gave them only one rule, don't eat from that one tree. And that by becoming fixated on the one thing they couldn't have, they neglected all of the rich blessings that God had given them, and they chose to ignore God, to seek after being like God and having complete and perfect knowledge the way that God does. They, they, they rejected God 
in pursuit of being God. There's a little bit of pride there. And so Adam and Eve fell. They opened the door for sin to enter the world. By rejecting God and rejecting the, the plan and the structures that he laid out for him, they, they opened the door for sin to enter the world. So we have a perfect creation that now has this, this blemish on it. Not just a blemish on it, but a blemish that affects every component of the creation. All of creation is groaning and, and, and is weeping and is grieving over the fact that sin has been introduced. It's created this brokenness between God and his creation. <clears throat> and so the story of the Bible goes on from there. And it focuses in and out. It's kind of like a spotlight zooming across human history. So we don't have the whole of history of the earth or the whole of history of human history. We just have a little spotlight that kind of zooms around and focuses in on certain things and tells the story of them and then zooms back out and focuses in and then zooms back out. And the next place or one of the next places that it zooms back in and starts to tell the story is it tells the story of a guy named Abram. And Abram later on will have his cha name changed to Abraham, and you probably have heard that name. But Abram is just a normal guy. He's just a, a guy who's living out in a country, and it's a country that is a pagan country. So they are polytheistic. They worship a bunch of different kind of gods. And, and, and God of the Bible, the, the, the creator God, he calls himself Yahweh. He goes out of his way to find Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to do something special with you if you'll follow me. And Abram says, sure, why not? So he leaves his home and everything he grew up in, and he leaves these idols and the gods that he grew up worshiping, and he follows Yahweh to a new place, a new land, and Yahweh says to him, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you the land that I've brought you to. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to give you kids. You're going to have lots of kids. Now, for us as, as Americans, we hear God say, I'm going to give you lots of kids. And we go, oh, no, 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 no. I can't afford that, God. I don't need that kind of blessing. But for Abram, who grew up in a culture where oftentimes there was no writing, uh, really like you never, you could go your whole life and never see anything written down, much less your name. For, there, for when you died, there was no record that you had ever existed except for the record that your children kept and passed down to others. So whatever reputation or whatever wealth that you, that you accumulated, if you wanted to be remembered in the future, like you needed kids to carry your name forward. So God says, I'm going to give you a bunch of kids. I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. I'm going to change your name from father to father of many nations. Not just like a dad but like a super dad of all these people, all right? You tracking with me? I know this is a lot of information to digest. <clears throat> I'm gonna begin to skip a little bit more, but, but it's important to understand <clears throat> that we're talking about real people, flesh and blood dudes that, um, that God interacts with, that Yahweh interacts with in a special way. Um, it's just fascinating, and, and I could talk to you about it uh, for a real long time. And I'm trying, trying really hard not to. So what God promised, what Yahweh promised to Abram actually comes true. So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel after a wrestling match with Yahweh. And then Israel has 12 sons. 
Each of those 12 sons has a family. Each of those families grows up and each family becomes what we refer to as a tribe. So, so when we think of Israel in this time, when we think of the, the, when we think of the people of Israel this time, they really are the sons of Israel. So these are people that are all related to each other. And they go into Egypt, which you may have heard this story. They go into Egypt and they're slaves there for 400 years. God raises up a guy called Moses, whom you've probably heard of. And Moses, God uses Moses to deliver them out of slavery in uh, in the book of Exodus, he delivers them out of slavery. They leave Egypt and they return, go on their way to return to the promised land. That's a really, really long process. Um, it takes a long time because they just, it, it's really complicated. Really interesting. And I love to talk with you about it, but it's, I'm already way going too slow here. So Moses' job is to bring the people back into the land, but they and Moses can bring them up to the border of the land that they're supposed to, to come back into, this land that was promised to Abram. Moses brings them up to the border, but he doesn't go in. He's, he has a, a, a young guy who's his apprentice, who his name is Joshua, and Joshua's job is to take the people over the border into the land that God promised to Abram. He sets them up not just as a family, but as a country. He sets them up as a nation. He gives them their own constitution. And we actually know their constitution pretty well, um, even though we don't know that it is their constitution. Their constitution begins with the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And then gives the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt worship no other God before me. Um, and that goes on. So that's actually, that's actually the, the constitution for the nation of Israel that's made out of the family of Israel, which is the family of Abram, who's just a dude out of Ur. Like, I'm, I'm trying to bring lots of chapters of Scripture down into, into a couple of sentences that are, that are really easy for us to understand. And now that nation has to go and conquer a space for the nation to exist in. And God gives them permission, not just gives them permission. He says, look, if I send you into this land and you don't kill every single one of the people that are in the land, those people are going to become your friends and the things that they're into are going to get you off track. The things that those people are into are going to get you off track. They're into all kinds of idol worship. They don't know me as the one true God. They often will sacrifice their children as offerings to their God, which is despicable. And so I don't want you to adopt their practices, so go ahead and kill all of them and we'll make a fresh start here. Um, and that's what Joshua's goal is. And, and he actually leads a couple of campaigns as, as one centralized army. The whole nation as one centralized army goes around and captures main cities in the land of, in the land of Israel. And then after they've captured the main cities, they've got a, a, an understanding of what the land actually looks like because they had never seen it before, but now they have. Then God goes into excruciating detail about who gets what section of the land. He, he takes each of those tribes, each of those families, and gives them their own section of the land and, and talks about the borders of where they're supposed to go, which to us is like, why is this so important? But to God, it was really important. Um, he's setting up rooms for these kids in the house that he's prepared for them. So, 
now that Joshua has, has, has gone in and they've taken the main cities, Joshua kind of stops leading the people. They stop leading as a centralized army. And Joshua says, it's up to you, various tribes, to finish wiping out the land. So, so like if, if, if we had a, an army come through and captured Miami, they captured Orlando, they captured Gainesville, they captured Tallahassee, they captured Jacksonville. Well, that's st still, if you're trying to take over Florida, there are still a lot of people that don't live inside those cities, but still we kind of take your temperature from how those cities go. So just because you've captured the main cities doesn't mean you've captured the land. So Joshua says to the people, like, now is the time for you guys to, to fight for your own land, take your own land. And that's what they're responsible to do um, as we're coming into now the season of the Judges, the book that we're called Judges. Um, and and now the book of Judges opens in chapter one with a couple of different stories that are from the era of Joshua. But the, the big thrust, the main thrust of Judges chapter one is that the people who were responsible to take the land from the Canaanites didn't do it. They, took, they had together had taken the main cities, but then when it came down to taking the rest of the land, the, the, the tribes didn't do what they were supposed to do. And it's so fascinating when you look back at all of the things and all of the ways that God has been with them up until this point. I know I've gone and summarized a lot of it, but God has been with these people. Remember, they were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. They didn't know how to fight battles. They didn't know how to camp. They didn't know how to prepare food or live in this land. They didn't have any money. And now God has delivered them from slavery. He has brought them out in a very miraculous way. He set them up to and, and take a land. He's given them victory in battles that they shouldn't have won. He has provided food for them when they should have starved to death in the desert. And now these people... <laughs> Are now get, they've been handed the deed to a house they just have to walk in and take, and they don't do it. God has answered every single one of their prayers. He's provided for their provision. He's provided for their food, their shelter. He's provided for them all along the way, safety. And now they don't quite finish the job. So if God answered your every prayer, would you follow him? That's where we come to Judges chapter 2, where I actually do want to spend some time and I want to ask a couple more application questions, if you'll permit me to do that. Judges chapter 2 and verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So, this is a really, really interesting passage. Um, 
the question is arise because this guy shows up who's called the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. And there are a number of times where, um, where this angel in particular shows up. But the thing that's interesting about the angel of Yahweh is that he talks as though he were Yahweh himself. Instead of saying, God has said to me that God brought you up out of Egypt. He says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. He said, these are all things that I did. These are all blessings that I poured out to you. But you have not obeyed my voice. So this angel of the Lord, hundreds and hundreds of years before, I think could be a picture of what we call the pre-incarnate Jesus. If, if that's not a familiar term to you, um, you can do some Googling and find out. But, but, but this is Jesus before the Christmas story, before Mary and before Jesus is actually born in a physical body. This is Jesus in the spirit coming from God to deliver a message about the things that he's done. And I think that that's really fascinating. But he, he, he is outlining for us, in summary, the things that we're going to see in the book of Judges. So the book of Judges covers about 400 years, and it covers, about, uh, it covers one cycle that happens probably about seven times. And the cycle is this, security, sin, slavery, supplication, and salvation. There's five steps to the cycle. Security, sin, slavery, supplication, salvation. And, and what I'd really like to show you today is the first two, security and sin. If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, you miss the security that these folks had. I've, I've tried to, to outline it for you that, the, that there's nothing in these people that would commend them to um, deserve God's blessing, and yet he continues to bless them. These people are as secure as they possibly could be. God has gone above and beyond, um, done miraculous things to provide for them. They are secure. And yet in that security, they choose to sin. And this is the big idea I'd like for you to take this morning. It's, it's taken us a while to get here, but this is the big idea. Not even the richest earthly blessings from God will rewire our defaults to ignore him. Not even the richest earthly blessings from God will rewire our defaults to ignore him. See, there's a default that's wired in our hearts, which says, I can just ignore God. And it's probably something that's in your heart. In fact, I would say that it is something that's in your heart. Because it's something that was in the first person's heart. Adam, in a, in, a, in a perfect environment where there had never been any kind of reason to mistrust God, still chose to ignore him. And we have the same wiring that, that, that leads us initially from, from the time that we're born to just ignore God and to try to make ourselves God. And not even the richest earthly blessings, nothing you can imagine, no security that, could, that God could give you, no answer to your prayer that God could give you will rewire your default settings, which are set to forget and ignore him. So I've said it a couple of times, and if you let me, I'd just like to define it for you. Sin, I think, as we look at the story and the, the whole Bible together, sin is any attitude or behavior that is in conflict with the character of our creator. Sin is any attitude or behavior that is in conflict 
with the character of our Creator. Why do I word it that way? I need you to remember that humanity was created to be like God in a way that no other section, no other part of creation was meant to be. We were made in God's image. And as people, as, as creations that were made to be like God, we are in sin when we have any kind of attitude or any kind of behavior that, that runs into conflict with our Creator's character. We were made to be like Him. We were made to have His character. So those can be sins of commission, which are sins that you commit, sins that you do, or they can be sins of omission, things that you ought to be doing that you're not doing, things that you have omitted from your life. And they can be behaviors. They can be readily visible. They can be sexual things that you do with your body. Or they can be, uh, they can be attitudes. They can be murder and hatred that you hold towards your brother in your heart. They can be apathy towards the suffering of other people in the world. Any attitude or behavior that is in conflict with the character of our creator is sin. And sin starts when God is no longer the center of our affections, our desires, or our thoughts. James describes it in, in the New Testament book of James in chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. That sin, uh, we're distracted by what we see and that it captivates our thoughts and then we are dragged away by sin. And so I would like to ask the question, what is it that we dwell on when we give ourselves time to think? What is it we dwell on when we give ourselves time to think? Now, you may be saying, oh, I'm, I'm Michael, I, I don't give myself time to think. I don't ever think about anything. Um, and, I, and I understand that and uh, I can relate uh, some days. But what is it that we, that, we, that we dwell on when we give ourselves space to think? And those things... Um, are going to shape our attitudes and they're going to shape our behaviors. See, we are whole persons. Like as a human, I'm a whole person and I have a body and I have a mind and I have a spirit. I have emotions and I'm part of a community. All of those things are part of myself. Myself is made up by all those things and I am not myself if I'm separated from any of them. And so um, tracing how sin manifests itself and tracing how sin works itself out can be kind of complicated. But we have clarity from James 1, which I have already mentioned to you, and from Romans 12, that the renewal of our whole self, the renewal of our whole self, our mind, our body, our spirit, our uh, emotions and our community, the renewal of our whole self begins with the thought patterns that we entertain. And so what we dwell on when we give ourselves space to think is going to give a heading for the direction that we're going to head in. Are we going to head in godly directions by dwelling on godly things? Are we going to head in selfish directions by dwelling on selfish things? Be renewed by the transforming of your mind, which means sometimes that you need new information. You cannot have new thoughts if you don't have new information. Um, but it can also mean that we need to put into practice the things that we know to be true. So what do we dwell on when we give ourselves space to think? We have this message from the angel of the Lord that because Israel did not do the thing that they were supposed to do, because they are by their defaults ignoring God, that God's not going to drive the people out. 
and that the people are going to be a thorn in their side and are going to lead them astray, that they're going to have more and more distractions and that they're not going to be able to serve God fully. So that's a prediction. The angel says it, and he says it to the whole congregation. And the name of that place is Bokim, which means weepers. So they, they named the place, this is where we cried. Because the angel of the Lord told us that we were, we were not going to be able to follow God the right way because we hadn't followed him then. So did it happen? Did what the angels say actually occur? If you look with me in, in Judges chapter 2 and verse 11, I'm going to read a big chunk and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Because we've already seen the first two steps of the cycle, security and sin. And now we're going to see the rest of the steps of the cycle. Uh, Judges chapter 2 verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, which are foreign deities, Canaanite gods. Verse 12, And they abandoned the Lord Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals with, and the Ashtaroth, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord Yahweh had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, and the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died... They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So, this is actually a summary of the whole book of Judges. It's the summary of the cycle. And so you've got security where God sets them in a, in a place where they are secure. And then because of their complacency or their desire to serve themselves, they choose sin. Security and then sin. And here in this section, we see uh, that the, the sin leads to slavery. The people, when they reject God and they do what's evil in God's sight, God abandons them and lets other people take over them. He, he gives them the thing that they want. They want, to be for, they want to be in the land with these Canaanites. Well, you can live with these Canaanites, but these Canaanites are not nice people. They're going to abuse you. And so sin leads to slavery. And when they've been in slavery long enough, there's supplication. There's supplication is kind of a fancy word for they cry out for help. They say, please, God, would you help us? For, like, well, aren't we your people? Like, didn't you take care of us? And God, um, because of their supplication, because he has pity on them, he sends a judge to be their salvation. Now, when you think of a judge, don't think about somebody in a powdered wig with a gavel. A judge is somebody who, who really usually were, were military leaders who came and they delivered Israel from the oppressor for a time. 
And so God would raise up and use these people uh, as salvation for the people and, and would give them a, a, a season of security. But that season of security would lead to their sin when the sin would lead to slavery and slavery would cause them to supplicate again and then God would raise up another judge. So that's, that's the cycle that we see in Judges. And the purpose of our, our series is to look closely at each of these sections of the cycle. Today we're focusing in on security and sin. Um, but we're going to, over the next couple of weeks, uh, take a look at each segment of this cycle. And we're going to examine how to break the cycle. Not even the, the richest earthly blessings from God will rewire our defaults to ignore him. And, and, and we see this pretty clearly. Even when they're delivered, even when God answers their prayers, they very quickly turn back to serving themselves. And so here's a, um, a hard truth that I think you already know, but none of us really wants to believe. That earthly blessings cannot satisfy us. Health. Perfect health will not be satisfying to us. Significant wealth will not be satisfying to us. A, a, a job and power and authority will not be satisfying to us. Earthly blessings cannot satisfy us. So our need must be for something else. Our need must be something our need must be for something that is not earthly. And I think it's significant that the angel of the Lord is the, is the one who opens up this book of Judges. All of this sin that we're going to see in Judges, and there's a lot of it, and it's disgusting, and it's uncomfortable to talk about, and if you thought that the Bible was G for Sunday school, you are wrong, because Judges gets rated X in a lot of ways. Um, it gets worse and worse and worse. And when you think it's as bad as it can get, it gets worse. But we're going to go through it um, because all of it points to Jesus. This is this story that where we are in history and the time that we're talking about is, is hundreds of years before Jesus is going to walk the earth in flesh and bone. But he's here at the beginning and giving a warning saying, I've been active in your life, and you still choose to reject me, and so now I'm going to give you the thing that you want. And when he is born in the flesh, when he does come as a man, when he does live among us, he teaches us that earthly blessings cannot satisfy us, and that the things that we need are found only in him. And so as we look at security and we think like, well, if God answered my every prayer, I'd definitely serve him. I think what we see in Judges is that you absolutely would not. You wouldn't serve God if your life was perfect. And maybe sometimes God leaves things in your life that are unsatisfactory to you in order to drive you to the fact that you need him. So the question that arises in my mind is, will we trust Jesus? To satisfy us? Will we trust Jesus to rewire our default settings? Because our default settings are to ignore God and to serve ourselves. And Jesus is the only one who can offer the heart surgery that we need. 
He's the one who comes and, and reconciles, makes friendship not between us and the people, uh, the, the wicked people that reject God, but Jesus comes and makes friendships between us and God himself. And that is the friendship that we need. Will we trust Jesus to rewire our defaults? If, if, if you're considering that for the first time, it's really simple. Have a conversation with him. He can hear you wherever it is that you are. And just say, Jesus, I think you can hear me. And I think that I want to learn more about this. Would you walk with me in this? And would you change my heart? And if it's not your first time considering that, um, I would just like to remind you that this is an ongoing process. That Jesus is continually in the process of rewiring our defaults. That none of us, as long as we walk the earth, has arrived yet to a place where all of our default settings point to God perfectly every time and we do it all perfectly. And so I'd encourage you in that ongoing process to be connected to the word, to look at what Jesus says because he'll hold you to it. To spend time talking to him in prayer, um, but then also to take what you know into practice. Knowing is not enough if we do not practice it. And often knowing the right things and having the right thought patterns is designed and must necessarily lead us to practicing the right behaviors. But as we consider all that, and as we're in a season of longing and desiring for things to get back to, get back to normal, let's just pause and remember that not even the richest earthly blessings from God will reset our defaults to ignore him. Let's pause and remember that not even our richest earthly blessings from God will rewire our defaults, which are set to ignore him. We need Jesus for that. 